Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We are knee-deep in chapter 7, a chapter that concerns a number of various aspects of not only marriage, but also uh, our sexuality. So we have been talking the stuff of theology of the body. And before we get back into chapter 7, I did just want to continue to thank all of you who are taking time out of your busy schedules to not only tune in to listen to me at its natural airtime at 5.30 in the evening, but all of you out there who are also tuning in by way of podcast, especially in the countries of uh, Mexico, Canada, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Paraguay, France, Portugal, Spain, Italy, uh, Croatia. I continue to see all of you on the grid, and as always, it really is an honor that you you are taking time out of your busy schedule to join me as we reflect into the richness of our faith, in particular in these first three days of the week, into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Huh? This letter that has us reflecting on so many various aspects of our faith. There isn't anything really that Paul doesn't touch over the course of his whole corpus of letters. Again, we are in his first letter to the Corinthians, so there might be some things he doesn't talk about in this letter, but man, does he cover a lot of ground as we are quickly discovering. I think this is program number 22, and we are in the seventh chapter of his first epistle to the Corinthians, and we are discovering that he does, in fact, cover a lot of ground. Now, when I wrapped up our program yesterday, I said that I wasn't done with those first 11 verses because I wanted to take the opportunity to reflect into the positive aspects of celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Certainly one of the things that comes through in the first 11 verses, but especially the first eight verses, is the fact that Paul is living a celibate life for the kingdom of heaven. So what I wanted to do is reflect into that, and and what are the biblical foundations of that, right, outside of uh, Paul's chapter 7, verses 1 to 8? Well, we can also turn to the book Revelation. Uh, what does the book Revelation say in uh, chapter 14, verse 4? Does not the book Revelation give the name virgins to those who have not been with women and who therefore follow the Lamb wherever he goes? Certainly, the institution of the state of celibacy or virginity, or what we can also call a eunuch, right, is instituted by Christ and described in chapter 19 of Matthew's gospel. If you have your Bibles out right now, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 19, verses 10 to 12. Chapter 19, verses 10 to 12. His disciples said to him, if that's how things are between husband and wife, it's better not to marry. But he replied, Not everyone can accept what I have said, but only those to whom it is granted. For there are some who are eunuchs from their mother's womb, and some who are made so by other men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves so for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
Let anyone accept this who can. Now, when I was reflecting into these verses, I turned my attention to Father Kent of the Mesa, the Franciscan. You've heard me mention him before. He uh, was a pontifical preacher for the papal household, which means he has been tasked to give retreats to the Pope, right, and all those who are working closely with him. He is an extraordinarily spiritual man who has a muscle-bound intellect, and the combination of the two is extraordinary. So I was uh, reflecting into some of his words as he reflects into those words, and, and this is what he had to say out from the gate. The word eunuch sounds rather harsh to our modern ears, and it was harsh also for people in our Lord's day. According to some, the choice of this unusual term was due to the fact that the adversaries of Jesus had accused him of being a eunuch since he was unmarried, just as they accused him on other occasions of being a glutton and a drunkard. It was a highly offensive word because for the Jewish mentality of the time, it was a moral duty to get married. And I think that's a very important point. Appreciate not only the literal sense of what was going on during Jesus's time, but in the light of that, what do these encounters mean and what do our Lord's words mean? Canton Mesa continues, the opinion of a certain Rabbi Eleazar, according to which a man with no wife is not even a man, in those times certainly was well known. So here, my friends, Jesus was taking up his adversary's accusation and making it in some ways his own, huh? but explaining it by this revelation of an unmarried state that was what? New and absolutely special. There are some, says Jesus, who do not marry. Because why? They are prevented from birth on account of some natural defect. Others do not marry because we can anticipate here what Jesus is after. They are prevented by the, maybe we could say, wickedness of, of the people or the circumstances of life. Finally, Jesus says, there are others again who do not marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In this last case, my friends, the word eunuch takes on a different significance, a different meaning. No longer are we made to see this word exclusively as something related to the physical, but now the moral. So the mention of the kingdom of heaven abruptly introduces an element of what? But mystery into our Lord's words, which is heightened by that final phrase, let anyone accept this who can. In other words, what our Lord is saying is, those who have received the gift of understanding, well, will understand. So my friends, the nature of virginity and celibacy and their justification depend on the nature of the kingdom of heaven itself. Now, the kingdom of God has the characteristic of being, huh? As we say today in a very appropriate formula, already and not yet. You've heard me use those two stock phrases before as it's tied to Benedict XVI, talking about how the mass is in heaven in the context of the already but not yet. It is already here. It has come. It is present. So the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus, is close at hand. It is among you. But in another sense, the kingdom of heaven has not yet arrived. 
it is still to come. Is this not why we pray in that petition of the Our Father, Thy kingdom come? We've explored that petition, huh? So since the kingdom of heaven has already come, it is possible for some people called by God to choose even now to live as people do in the final condition of the kingdom. And how does one live in the final condition of the kingdom? Well, the Lord tells us in the Gospel of Luke. Go to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verses 34 to 36. The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy of that age and resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage because they are no longer able to die. And listen to these words from our Lord. They're angel-like and are children of God since they've attained the resurrection. So it is precisely in this that the prophetic dimension of virginity, the prophetic dimension of celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of God resides. By the simple fact, my friends, that it exists without the need for words, this form of life shows what the final condition of men and women will be, one that is destined to last for a period of time, 200 years, 300 years, no, forever, forever. It is, as Father Kenta La Mesa says, a prophetic existence. It constantly points towards the end. So, in this reality, virginity makes sense precisely because eternal life and the risen state exist. It is a reality of the Spirit, and what Paul says about the things of the Spirit apply to it, namely that, well, what have we already talked about in chapter 2? That the unspiritual person is unable to accept what comes from the Spirit of God, since for him it's foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 goes on to say, he's unable to understand such matters because they can only be evaluated spiritually. What's more, could we not say, as we reflect into the importance of celibacy for the kingdom of God, that it is quite difficult to imagine what the church today would look like had there not been, through the centuries, this host of men and women who have left house, wife, or children for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Father Cantalamesa makes note in his reflection that the proclamation of the gospel and mission work have rested to a large extent on those who become celibates for the kingdom of God. He says, within Christianity, they have promoted knowledge of the word of God through study. They have opened up new ways of Christian thought and spirituality. Abroad, they have carried the message of the kingdom to the most remote peoples. They are the ones who brought into being nearly all the charitable institutions that have so enriched the church and the world. My dear friends, to be a celibate for the kingdom of God is to really enter into the dynamism of that all-important virtue of purity. Remember what we have talked about before, as recent as yesterday. That word purity in the Greek, katharos, when you translate it, yes, it means clean, modest, but more specifically, without mixture. 
The idea there is to be single-hearted. The idea there is to have a single-mindedness for God, to be concerned with only God's affairs and God's affairs alone. It is no wonder why the celibates, the virgins, were so instrumental in the building up of Christian civilization because they possessed a single heart for God. It's interesting, if you were to fast forward into chapter 7 to verses 32 to 35, you probably have the second greatest New Testament text alongside of Matthew 19 on virginity. It's chapter 7, verses 32 to 35, and it really highlights how the unmarried, the celibates, can give their minds to the Lord's affairs in a way that others can't. Just practically speaking, Paul is saying that when you're a celibate for the kingdom of God, there is a certain single-heartedness for God. Why don't we go there and go ahead and read those verses now? This world as we know it is passing away. I want you to be free from anxiety. The unmarried man concerns himself with the Lord's affairs, with how to please the Lord, while the married man concerns himself with worldly affairs, how to please his wife, and he is divided. Likewise, girls who are betrothed and unmarried women are concerned with the Lord's affairs, how to be holy in body and spirit, while a married woman is concerned with affairs of the world, such as how to please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not simply to rein you in, I want you to preserve good order so you'll be able to devote yourselves to the Lord without distractions. So at first sight, the motivation St. Paul gives here for virginity seems different from that given by Jesus. It appears subjective, what Father Cantonamesa calls uh, psychological, centered more on the good of individuals and their peace of mind than on the kingdom of God. But this is not the case. It is the same exquisitely objective and theological motive which has God as its aim, not oneself. All the motives adopted by the apostle for virginity are summed up in the expression, for the Lord, is it not? And ever since Easter, this is the exact equivalent of the expression, for the kingdom of heaven. We know that after Easter, the expression, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, so central in the preaching of Jesus, disappears almost completely from Christian preaching. In its place, we find the apostolic proclamation of what? Christ has died. He is risen. He is Lord. I mean, have there been any more important words than those three words? He is risen. No one set of three words strung together have changed history like those three words. He is risen. Before Easter, Jesus said what? The appointed time has come and the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Certainly this is what Mark talks about, right? After Easter, this fundamental, fundamental proclamation made up of a piece of news, the kingdom of God is at hand, Now sounds like what? Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 36, verse 38. 
This Jesus whom you crucified, God, made both Lord and Messiah, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So you see, my friends, the motive Paul uses to justify his exhortation to virginity, this world as we know it is passing away, sounds very much like what? The appointed time has come. The appointed time has come. And so for all of those who are willing to hear the call and respond to that call, okay, God speed to you and let the grace of God be ever before you. Okay, with that, let us now turn our attention back into the verses themselves of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And I say that, we just read verses 32 to 35, but we need to go back to verse 12, right? I was jumping ahead a little bit to to reinforce the point I was making. All right, I'll go ahead and read verses 12 to 16. To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is consecrated through his wife and the believing wife is consecrated through her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner desires to separate, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not bound, for God has called us to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? All right, what's going on here? Well, this phrase that comes to us from verse 12 to the rest, I say, uh, not the Lord. Paul offers pastoral direction for situations not addressed by Jesus' teaching, huh? For example, marriages between baptized Christians and non-believers, this disparity of cult. Though the difficulties facing these couples are certainly formidable, we could say, They are not, Paul wants us to see, insurmountable. Indeed, Paul holds out hope, the hope that a Christian spouse can be instrumental in the conversion of an unbelieving partner. It's really interesting, if you were to turn your attention to the Catechism and paragraph 1637, it goes to these very verses to talk about this issue at hand. I want to go ahead and go there now. This is the Catholic Catechism, paragraph 1637. In marriages with disparity of cult, the Catholic spouse has a particular task. For the unbelieving husband is consecrated through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is consecrated through her husband. It is a great joy for the Christian spouse and for the church if this consecration should lead to the free conversion of the other spouse to the Christian faith. And the paragraph concludes, Sincere married love, the humble and patient practice of the family virtues and perseverance in prayer can prepare the non-believing spouse to accept the grace of conversion. You know, my friends, I know many Catholic couples, many Catholic marriages that have this disparity of cult. Maybe you are in one. And one thing you can be assured of is this. God has called you to pray fervently for the conversion of your spouse. And with that, 
you were to understand that in that vocation, in that calling you have to pray for your spouse, that you yourself will find yourself going deeper into the Catholic faith, and that this is indeed providential in the wisdom of God, that just as you go deeper in prayer for the sake of your spouse's conversion, so are you called to convert and witness in all the more powerful ways to the richness of our faith. Be patient, my friends. I'm sure you have heard of the many conversion stories that have taken place through the years because of spousal prayer, spousal witness. Okay, how about verses 17 to 24? Only let everyone lead the life which the Lord has assigned to him and in which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was any one at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was any one at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Everyone should remain in the state in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Never mind. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You are bought with a price. There we have that phrase again. We already heard that, huh, in last chapter? Do not become slaves of men. So brethren, in whatever state each was called, there let him remain with God. There let him remain with God. All right. Verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. We know what circumcision was all about, right? That external covenant sign that you belong to God. Well, the sign of circumcision no longer serves as an identity marker for God's people in the new covenant as it did under the old. No, God has circumcised the hearts of the faithful through baptism. The next verse in this language, but keeping the commandments of God, what's going on there? Well, unlike the many ceremonial laws of the old covenant, which are now obsolete, the moral commandments, the Ten Commandments, my friends, given through Moses, are to continue to guide the children of God to what but spiritual maturity. What is that great passage that comes to us from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and following? The one time you see the phrase new covenant in the Old Testament or Old Covenant, when Jeremiah is talking about the coming of the Messiah, that when the Messiah comes, the law will no longer be written on stone, but inscribed upon the heart. Huh? Inscribed upon the heart. And so it is. We are called to be obedient right, to the laws of God, understanding that what lies at the heart of the laws of God are what but relationship. Remember what the Hebrew word is for law. Yada, yada, a Hebrew term that is an archery term. It actually means bullseye, to hit the mark, to strike bullseye. To live according to the law of God in the Old Testament is to live in the heart of God. Incidentally, in the New Testament, when Paul uses the Greek 
hamartsia. He is translating the Old Testament yara because hamartsia in the Greek translates as to miss the mark. To sin is to miss the mark. To sin is to not be obedient to the laws of God. I mean, could we not put this within the context of every father-son relationship, every parent-child relationship? I am a father. I have four kids. With my wife, we establish rules and laws for the sake of family order, right? The moment our children are disobedient to the laws that we have established, to the rules that we have established, they're what? They're missing the mark. But the question here is, my friends, why do we establish laws? Well, I just said, for order, more specifically, for peaceful harmony, that we might build up one another in the spirit of truth and goodness. When our children disobey a law, it's more than just disobeying the law. They're disobeying the givers of the law, right? And we are givers of those laws because we want to build up our family in the spirit of goodness and, of course, in the spirit of relationship, healthy living, healthy relationships, right? So this is what God is after. No longer is law going to be written on stone, something exclusively external. No, now it is going to be written on the heart, It is going to be an interior law. And our Lord says, I am going to give you the grace that is necessary to live according to this interior law. All you have to do is surrender. All you have to do is enter into relationship with me. The deeper you go, the more you will better understand not only the laws that he gives, but moreover, your state of life. I mean, really... What's key for us here in verses 17 to 24 is this Pauline reinforcement of embracing the vocation that God has given you. What does he say here? Let everyone lead the life which the Lord has assigned to him and which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And in verse 24, so brethren, in whatever state each was called, there let him remain with God. Brothers and sisters, God meets us how he makes us, and he walks with us as he is. He just asks that as he knocks on the door of our heart, we open the door, and we allow his grace to fill us up in the vocation to which he has called us. If you are single, if you are married, if you are consecrated religious, surrender yourself in the eternal now, right? (laughs) this very moment, and allow God in. Allow him to do great things with your life. This is what Paul was after. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift of reflection, in particular, reflecting into your very life and love. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. 
If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.